Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 3 through 10. And considering what is perhaps one of the most misunderstood doctrines of New Testament religion. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 3 through 10, and considering the Christian Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, give attention to God's holy word. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us pray. Almighty God, we cry out to you, even as the words of Psalm 4 have instructed us, that you would hear our voice when we pray, and that you would answer us speedily with your Spirit. We pray now, O Lord, as we come to this time of preaching, that you would pour out your Spirit and bless this means of grace to show us your glory and to feed us upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask for his name. Amen. Purchasing a house is an interesting experience, isn't it? There's, there's all kinds of things to find out about the house, and it usually begins with finding out if this is the kind of house I want. When you begin the process of shopping, you begin finding out what is the bathroom like? How many acres are, uh, is in this property? What is the, the kitchen like? Does it uh, have the kind of siding I like? And all these other questions you ask about the house you're going to purchase. You want to find out the nature of this house. What kind of house is it? But even if you know what kind of house you're looking at, it's still not yours unless it's on the market. If the house is not available, then there's no possibility that you can own that house. So once you find a house that you like, you will then have to determine, is it available? Once you know the nature of the house that you want, you have to find out if there is a possibility that this could be my house. But even at that point, you're still not enjoying that house. You may like the kitchen. It may be on the market. It may even be in your price range. But until you are given the keys and you actually enter the house, that is not your house. But once you're given the keys and once you have opened the door, 
that house is now really yours. Well, likewise, in our faith and in the the hope that is held out for us in in this passage, this hope is called rest. The, The rest that we are given in Christ follows the same kind of pattern. This passage tells us about God's rest. It tells us what the nature of this rest is. It describes it for us in verses 3 through 5. But then also in verses 6 through 9, it's going to hold out to us that this rest is still on the market. It's still possible to enjoy this rest. And then finally in verse 10, it's going to show us that the reality of this rest is found in Christ. Verses 3 through six, uh, five, three through 5 deal with the nature of this rest. Verses 6 through 9 gives us the possibility of enjoying this rest. And then in verse 10, it tells us that the possession of this rest is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, if we were to summarize this passage and, and the main idea of this passage that the author is teaching us is that Sabbath keeping belongs to Christians who trust in Christ. It says that the nature of Sabbath keeping is only enjoyed by those who believe in Christ. And as we look at this passage, we're going to notice these three things. The nature, the possibility, and the reality. The nature, the possibility, and the reality. Now, one of the first things that this passage tells us about the nature of rest is that it's a benefit of faith. Look at what the author says in verse 3. For we who have believed do enter that rest. You know, when we speak about Sabbath keeping and, and we're entering into this topic of the Christian Sabbath, there's often a misconception that we labor under. There's a, there's a massive misconception that many of us have when we look at keeping the Sabbath. Because as you well know, the Sabbath is one of God's commandments. It's the fourth commandment. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And we begin to approach this topic from this misconception that if it's in God's law, the Ten Commandments, then the only way to obtain it, the only way to keep this commandment and enjoy the benefit of it is through my good works. It's through my own merit. It's through my own power and striving. But you see, what the author of Hebrews begins with by telling us about this rest is that no, 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 no. The rest that is promised is promised to you and you obtain it by faith. It is by faith that we enjoy the benefits of the gospel. The law is given to us to direct us in the lifestyle of the gospel. You see, many of us in our day labor under a misconception that the law and the gospel are polar opposites. We think of the law and the gospel as Cain and Abel. 
that one is trying to murder the other and that there's no fellowship between these two brothers. But you see, the law and the gospel are more like David and Jonathan. They have a perfect harmony and a perfect fellowship with one another. And when God commands anything, the command comes to us assuming that you will obey it by faith. And so the author tells us that the nature of this rest is firstly a rest that we enter into by faith. We lay hold of it by faith. Now, what is the faith that we're being exhorted to here? Well, it's the faith of the entire book of Hebrews. It's the faith of the entire Scripture. It's the faith, uh, those that believe, as we just heard confessed in the vows, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who have rested and received Him as the only Savior from sin. It is that kind of faith that brings you into this rest that God holds out to us. So the author begins by describing this rest. It's something you lay hold of by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a divine rest. Look at what he says in verses 3, 4, and 5. He quotes Psalm 95 once again, and he says, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now here's just sort of a freebie for you as you read the Scriptures. This passage is often very confusing to modern readers because the the author of Hebrews is interpreting Scripture in the way that ancient interpreters would go about it, especially ancient rabbis. And one of the techniques that the rabbis would use is they would pick up on a phrase or maybe even one word, and they would follow that word through a series of different passages. Here... The word that the author is picking up on is my rest. That's what he's focused on. He's not focused on the swearing uh, so much. He's not necessarily focused on the wrath, but he's focused on my rest. Now, what often happens in these kind of passages is that the rabbi will quote the entire context. He only wants to talk about my rest, but he quotes the entire verse. Sometimes this can be confusing to us. So just note that he's talking about my rest. That's what he zeroed in on. Just as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then in verse 4, he quotes the creation, uh, the creation narrative. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now he reiterates his point in verse 5. Again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. What the author of Hebrews is doing here in verses 4 and 5 is showing us that the rest which is held out to us is not merely a human rest. It's not even a rest that the angels enjoy, but it's a rest that the triune God enjoyed after his works of creation. If you go back to the creation account, you read that God created all things and said it is very good. And then it says, on the seventh day, he blessed it and he rested from all of his works, which he did. Now, we have to ask ourselves a question before we can really draw the meat out of this passage. God is not like you and I. He does not have a body. 
He is also perfectly active at all times. He never runs out of energy. He never gets tired. He never gets hungry. He never gets thirsty. He never has to take a break. So when the Scriptures speak about God resting on the seventh day, we have to ask ourselves, what is this rest that God is taking? Well, I think the rest that's being talked about here is the rest that God enjoys being satisfied in His works. The, the rest that is talked about here is one of God's attributes of perfect blessedness and tranquility. You remember when John the Apostle is given a vision of the heavenly throne room. John the Apostle is told to come up here and behold things which shall happen hereafter. And when he's taken up into the heavenly throne room, he beholds the throne as it were a precious gem with a rainbow going all the way around it. And around the throne, it says it was a pool of crystal glass. There was a stillness around God's throne room because in God's presence, because of God's power, everything is at peace, calm, and undisturbed. This is the kind of rest that's being talked about here. This is the rest that God himself enjoys because in his presence, nothing is disturbed. Nothing is out of place. Nothing is wearing out. Nothing is wearing down. There is no doubt that his purposes will be accomplished. And as he says in the passages quoted, they shall not enter my rest. There's a second thing to realize about this rest. In the creation account, God rested on the seventh day, and then it moves to a closer and more precise description of the creation of man. Man was created, and he was placed in the garden and brought into communion with God in the Garden of Eden. The nature of this rest is something we enjoy by faith. It is a divine rest, and it is the purpose of our creation. When God made man, he made him to be united and to commune with him in all of his blessedness, all of his glory, and in his perfect rest. That's what you and I were made for. That's what God created mankind to be and to do. To be united and to commune with Him. John Calvin, when he comments on this passage, has some wonderful insights about the nature of our faith and what really is the purpose of Christianity. And he says, one of the chief purposes of Christianity is this idea that we were made to be united to God, and to commune with Him. And in this passage, what the author is holding out for us is that one of the benefits of that, one of the reasons you should commune with God is because it's only in that communion that you are given His eternal rest. You're given access to the peace that passes understanding, as Paul says in Philippians. You are given rest for your souls, as the Lord Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 11. It is only by communing with God that you participate in His nature. Now that may sound strange, but turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter speaks 
about our union and communion with God in very striking language. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes and says, uh, well, he begins in verse 1, to all those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice that Peter also emphasizes believers are not those who hope things will get better. Believers are those who trust in the Lord Jesus, and then all of the benefits come with Christ. Those who have obtained like precious faith, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Notice, That through these precious promises, holding out the rest that God enjoyed at the end of creation, these precious promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. You may enjoy the enjoyments of heaven. You may enjoy the peace of Jehovah. You may be one with God, crowned with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through these you should partake of the divine nature. Now we have to give a caution here. This doesn't mean you become gods. This doesn't mean we become one with the divine essence and are swallowed up in the divine being. This means that through the Lord Jesus Christ we are united into a covenant community. We are wedded to God, even as husbands and wives are wedded. The Lord says that the two shall become one flesh. So on one level, husbands and wives are individuals. We can uh, talk to them as individuals, regard them as individuals, but on another level, husbands and wives are one thing, one marvelous covenant union. That's what Peter is speaking about here. Through the promises, you become covenantally united to your husband and you enjoy all of his riches. And in Hebrews 4, one of those riches is his rest, his sense of peace, his calmness. Well, the rest is described for us. This is a it's God's own rest that we obtain by faith. But now the author goes a little bit further and he describes the possibility of enjoying this rest. He says that this, uh, as the Lord Jesus says in John 14, my father has many mansions. And then in this passage he says that mansion is still on the market. It's still available. doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. If you are under the preaching of the gospel and there is breath in your lungs, it is still possible for you to enjoy this blessedness. And he describes it in this way. Verse 16, I'm sorry, 6. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. 
Now, verse 6, we need to explain this passage a little bit more deeply. Verse 6, the author is sort of summarizing everything he said up to this point. In chapter 3 and up to this point in chapter 4, he's summarizing everything he's asserted. And what the essence of that is, is that there is a rest that remains. There's a promise that's hanging out there. God has made this promise. The first people that the promise was made to failed. Ancient Israel failed to enter into God's rest because they were unbelieving and disobedient. Now, you know, we we are not like God. I am not like God. And, And oftentimes, if I were in this position, I make a promise of something, and, and offer it to you, and all you have to do is um, take it up. All you have to do is sign the dotted line or, or give me the phone call or whatever needs to happen, and I'll give you this promise. Sometimes the, the other party doesn't take me up on my promise. And sometimes my reaction is to say, well, fine, rip up the promise. You don't want it? Nobody gets it. I'm going to take my ball and go home. So Sometimes we act that way when we make a promise, and it's not laid hold of. But you see, what the author is saying here is that God is not like that. God is generous and loving. As we've been learning in the Westminster Confession Study, God is most loving, merciful, gracious, and long-suffering, forgiving iniquity, sin, and transgression. You see, God is so generous. He so wants people in His covenant That when Israel rejected it, the promise still stands and it goes out to other people. The promise is not nullified by man's unbelief. That's what's going on here. Even though the Israelites failed, that doesn't mean the promise fails. That means they were sinners. And so the promise remains. You remember Christ illustrates this in the Gospels with the parable of the uh, wedding feast. There was a great Lord who held a wedding feast and he tells his servants, Go to the people I've invited. And the people that were invited made all kinds of excuses. I have a new donkey. I have a new vineyard. I have a new um, son or, or whatever's going on. They make all these excuses and they don't come. Servants come back and say, Lord, uh, they didn't want to come. What are we going to do? The table's ready. The food is cooked. Everyone's waiting. The Lord says, fine, go find other people. Go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in because my feast will be filled. My table will be filled. That's the nature of verse 6. So, brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged. This rest is still available to you. The promises of God have not failed even though you have failed. His promises are greater than your transgressions. And so he says this It remains that some must enter into this. It remains, and now he goes to explain this in verse 7. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it had been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verses 3 through 5, the author was focused on my rest. Now he moves to a different focus, and he's going to focus on the word today. He focuses on the word today, and notice what he cites for us. He says that 
if it's in Psalm 95, this is David saying this. Now, it's very interesting when you think about the history of the Scriptures. Creation happened some thousands of years ago, and at that point, God entered his rest. Later on, as we're going to read here, Joshua and the episode of entering the land of Canaan, which, by the way, in Psalm 95, is the disobedience that caused Israel to fail to enter God's rest. You have creation entering the land of Canaan. They, God swore they shall not enter my rest. And now it comes up again in the kingdom of David under his inspiration. And so the author says, pay attention to this. If David says this after such a long time, there remains the possibility of entering into this. Verse 8, he goes on to buttress this. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Here's what the author is saying. Because this is a divine rest, it is an eternal rest. Because God is eternal. And everything that he enjoys is eternal. This eternal rest is available to you through the promises. And this eternal rest was not accomplished in Joshua. You see, Joshua was a type of Christ. Joshua was merely a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, symbolizing what God was going to do through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This connection is so, is so prominent in the scriptures. If you're reading a King James Version, <clears throat> verse 8 probably says, if Jesus had given them rest. In Hebrew, Joshua and Jesus are the exact same. It's the exact same name. We say them differently in English to make the distinction clear, but that's what the King James authors are doing. They're translating the name Joshua. So if in the creation week, Joshua's conquest of Canaan, David in Psalm 95, this promise is continually repeated because the promised rest that is offered to you is an eternal rest. It's an eternal rest that was symbolized by these types and shadows, and it is still available to you because the eternal rest is not bound to any moment in time. This again helps us understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. You see, when the fourth commandment comes up, six days shalt thou labor, etc., etc. Many people will often object and say that there is no more Christian Sabbath. We don't need to keep the Sabbath anymore because that commandment and that promise was made to ancient Israel. It was made to Moses and the forefathers, and it was made to those who entered the land of Canaan. The, the assumption is that Israel has realized what the promises of God symbolized. Many people think 
that all God promised to Israel was a physical rest, was a carnal enjoyment of the land of Canaan, rather than understanding, as the author of Hebrews helps us to understand, God's promises in the Old Testament promised the same substance that we are promised. Spiritual rest with God according to His Word. A spiritual enjoyment of God's benefits through union and communion with Him. What Israel was promised, you have the possibility of enjoying through the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice also, the two people that the author cites here, David and Joshua, they are both types of Christ. David, of course, as the king, Christ is the son of David. Joshua, as the one who conquers the world, he conquers the promised land, and his name similarity with Jesus. These are both types of Christ, and so through the types, the possibility is reiterated. Now notice, very importantly, verse 9. The author then says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Here's where we need to be careful with our steps. Unfortunately, your English translation is misleading you slightly on this passage. The New King James especially. All throughout this passage in verses 3 up through verse 8, the word rest is the same word throughout the passage. And the word rest means... uh, It simply means a a laying aside and and being regenerated or recuperated. It is the same kind of rest that happens when we go to sleep. Not in the, the aspect of no activity, but what does sleep do for us? We put off the cares and we exit the world, so to speak, and our bodies are refreshed. Our minds are rejuvenated through sleep. That's the kind of rest that's being talked about. It's the kind of rest that God enjoys, though he doesn't sleep and he never needs to sleep, but it's a contented, blessed enjoyment of God's goodness and his creation. Three through eight, that's the word that's used. Now in verse nine, the author changes the word. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. The word he now uses here is a Greek word. No surprises there. It's a Greek word that is... Sabbatismos. Sabbatismos is the word that's used. Now, this Greek word is the same kind of word as Judaism or Buddhism or rationalism. You see, words that end with the ism are words that refer to a way of life centered on that idea. If somebody is, uh, if somebody follows rationalism, that means that they do everything according to reason. At least they think they do. If somebody is a follower of Buddhism, they're a follower of Buddha. If somebody is a follower of Mormonism. You get the idea. These, these category, this category of words refers to a practice 
or a way of life. The word that's used here in verse 9, the author basically says, there remains a Sabbathism, a Sabbathism for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God. That's the simple way to understand this word, Sabbath-keeping. It's a very unique word in the New Testament. This is the only place that this word shows up. And yet, this is the most clear passage in the New Testament that Sabbath-keeping is a New Testament duty and grace. Understand the relationship here. Verses 3 through 8, the author has been at pains to show us the nature of rest and the possibility of rest. This is a divine rest enjoyed by faith. This is available to you just as it was available in the days of David, just as it was available in the days of Joshua. The opportunity is still here. This is an eternal rest that God enjoys and you can enjoy it too. Now the conclusion that he draws is keep the Sabbath. That's contrary to the way we think about the law, isn't it? Remember we started out talking about the, the burden that we labor under. We tend to labor under a burden that if God has promised it, the law is irrelevant. But what we see here is that God has promised you rest. God has promised you blessedness and joy that you can enjoy right now by faith. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. Therefore, continue to keep the Sabbath. A couple of things to understand here because we're going to get into some objections to the doctrine I'm laying out. The first objection is that many take this passage and they would agree with me up to verse 8. They would say, yep, you're right, preacher. It's an eternal rest that's still available to us through Christ. It's eternal blessedness with our Lord. And we partake of it now. Therefore, because it's eternal, we no longer have to keep the Sabbath because we enjoy it all the time just by being Christians. We, we enjoy it all the time just because we are united to Christ. There's no need to do anything else. Here's the problem. Even though we enjoy God's rest and blessedness to a greater degree than the Old Testament, we have not entered into the mansion yet. We have not fully realized the magnitude of the blessings of the gospel. We are not in the eternal state. We are still being sanctified and we are still hoping for even greater displays of peace that passes understanding. Let me put it this way. You and I have not arrived. Shocking as that may be to some of us, we, we have not arrived at perfection yet. The Lord still holds out to us a greater degree of blessedness and rest for all eternity. Because we have not entered in yet, therefore, we keep the Sabbath. 
I like what one of the Puritans said. The Sabbath are like steps up a staircase. And, and the Lord gives you your Sabbath every week. And, and the way we are to use those Sabbaths is that we keep ascending week by week until we finally enter the heavenly gates. That's what your Sabbaths are. Because you have not yet arrived, therefore there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. And so the author tells us the nature, the, the possibility, and the Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God. The second thing we need to understand about this, we're going to get to verse 10 in a second, but the second thing we need to understand at this point is how do we keep the Sabbath? Now here, there's many errors. There are many ways to mistake at this point. On the one hand, the Puritans, whom we would respect and, and love, made the error of being overly strict. If you read some Puritan practices in England of the 17th century, you, you wonder if they've ever gotten out of Judaism. Some of the Puritans would not eat food that was cooked on Sunday. They would not eat it. Some Puritans would refuse to eat at all on Sunday. They would fast on the Lord's Day. Other Puritans had various degrees of rigor in how they were to keep the Sabbath. This is a tendency, I think, in Reformed circles, is for us to be too rigorous in keeping the Sabbath. But remember what the nature of the Sabbath is. It's a benefit enjoyed by faith. The, the true heart of Sabbath keeping is receiving the blessings of Christ by faith. It is not something you earn through your merits. It is not something that you achieve by having the strictest form of Sabbath keeping. And so we have to avoid over-strictness with Sabbath keeping. On the other hand, we have to avoid looseness with Sabbath keeping. We have to avoid being indifferent to keeping the Sabbath. The danger here is that because it comes to us by faith in the promise, we don't need to do anything else. We don't need to lay aside our proper works. We don't need to lay aside our worldly cares and concerns. God has already given it to us. But you see, faith operates on the means. Let me put it to you this way. You know, I have two sons. And at this point, they're growing up very healthy and strong. And I think um, they have all the potential of being very athletic young men. Now, at this point, if I just stopped and said they have all the potential, they have the nature of being an athlete, and they have all the possibility of being an athlete. Now let's sit on the couch and eat potato chips. They will never realize their potential. Likewise with the rest of the Sabbath and the benefits of the gospel. God has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. And the possibility of you enjoying it is there by union with Christ. Now, be about the work of Sabbath keeping. 
Here's a couple of practical guides for how do you keep the Sabbath. One, lay aside your ordinary lawful labors. As much as you can, don't engage in your business or your, 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 uh, your, your weekly work. Lay it aside. Try not to think about it. Try not to be talking about it. Be as diligent as you can to not let this stuff intrude on Sundays. Likewise, worldly news, news of events going on in the world, stuff happening on social media, you should try and put that stuff away on Sunday. And the reason for it is, if we are going to focus on God and enjoying communion with Him, we can't have distractions. We have to put things aside so that we can focus on what God is holding out to us. You see, you and I are not gods. We are, in many ways, one-track-minded people. It's Sometimes people can multitask, but what often happens when people multitask and try and do five things at once, five things get done poorly. With what God holds out to you on Sunday, He holds out to you communion with Him and enjoyment of His benefits. And He gives you the reality of this in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is now where verse 10 comes in. Look at what the author says. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. It's a very difficult verse to interpret. There's a a couple different interpretations. On the one side would be the interpretation that I disagree with, and I'm going to lay this out for you. This is probably the interpretation you've heard most commonly. The interpretation of this verse that I would depart from says that in verse 10, the he who has entered refers to the individual Christian. What they take this verse as saying is that the individual Christian who's united with Christ has now entered into God's rest and is now enjoying God's rest, having ceased from his works of righteousness having ceased from trying to earn his own righteousness through his obedience, by faith in Christ, we cease from those works and we now enjoy the blessedness of reconciliation by grace. That's one interpretation. John Calvin leans in this direction, interpreting this verse that way. So I'm aware that I'm rejecting an interpretation from none other than John Calvin. However, I have another John on my side. John Owen... However, another famous Reformed theologian takes this interpretation of the passage. John Owen says, and I think he's right, and I'll show you why, the he who has entered in refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two reasons for this, very briefly. First, the context of the book of Hebrews. The whole context of the book of Hebrews is set in chapter 2, verse one, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Skipping down to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then in verse 5. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. Just to summarize, he's put the world of which we speak in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of chapter 3, he is very explicit. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, 
Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. So the broad context of the book of Hebrews is Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews is setting before us Christ Jesus at every single turn. That's what he's doing throughout the book. But in the immediate context, the grammar of this verse, I think it must be the Lord Jesus Christ because of the logic of Sabbath-keeping. Now, what is the logic of Sabbath-keeping? Remember the fourth commandment. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and then he blessed and rested on the seventh day. You, therefore, keep the Sabbath day holy. What we're being told here is that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished his work. His works have been finished and perfected, and now, therefore, we follow his example. In creation, God rested on the seventh day, and the Hebrews kept the seventh day. In redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes his works on the first day of the week. The resurrection from the dead was a Sunday. The ascension into heaven was a Sunday. Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was a Sunday. And so at every stage, the Lord Jesus, when he finished his redemptive work, it was on a Sunday. This now is why in the New Testament era we keep the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me make this a little bit more explicit or more simple. The logic of the Sabbath is that God works and rests. Man works and rests. In the original commandment, it was God the creator that we were imitating. Now it is God the redeemer. God the redeemer works and we rest. God the redeemer works and we rest. That's what's going on here. And that's why I think verse 10 is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice also in verse 10, he who has entered his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now, when the author writes in this way, he's speaking about works that are proper to God alone. God ceased from his own proper works in creation. He just cited that in verse 4. God rested on the seventh day from all his works, his proper works as creator. So the one who rests in verse 10 must also be ceasing from his proper works in the same way that God the creator did on the seventh day. Well, the only person that can be is the Lord Jesus as God the redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ has ceased from all his proper redemptive works. And this is what we enjoy on the Christian Sabbath. Brothers and sisters, let me, let me just encourage you in conclusion with Matthew chapter 11. Sabbath keeping is one of the most misunderstood doctrines of the New Testament, and yet it is the source of the most spiritual comfort in the Christian life today. If you can learn, even to a small degree, to keep the Sabbath by faith in the Lord Jesus, I guarantee you, with the guarantees of heaven, 
that you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. There is no way that God's promise can fail. If you keep the Sabbath as the Scriptures lay it out to be kept, you will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Look at what the Lord Jesus says. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Pay attention. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. It's no mistake that Matthew put this right before his doctrine of the Sabbath. Because true Sabbath-keeping is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, enjoying His finished work, and rejoicing in the blessing of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the promise that You hold out to us of Your eternal rest. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to enjoy the reality of Your rest and blessedness through the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to edify and build up our souls, we pray, for Jesus' sake, amen.